Chapter 5 Physics Phenomena Are Land Too Without validating mind with ecological properties, there develops educated minds engaged in diminishing global ecological integrity through the exercise of chronically overdeveloped reason. Sheridan and Longboat, 2006 Let's recap a bit. I have shown that the activities of physics are deeply connected with extraction, which is colonial. To do that, I discussed the history of physics, its deep support of imperialism through weapons development, and how dominant approaches to ethics avoid questions of resources and environmental responsibility. I showed that though physics writing ignores it, experiments depend on vast structures of extraction which have been enacting violence against the structures of life for hundreds of years. All of this supports the point that the activities of physics involve the fruits of extraction, and that they do so in a way that upholds and benefits from global extractivism. In this chapter, I would like to push this argument further. I will argue that the objects of study of physics are, in fact, a part of land, addressing my second research question. Stars and quantum fields perhaps share little ecological context with us, but it is through the cultural material practice of physics that these objects are made into objects. This places the objects of study of physics firmly and specifically on Earth, rather than in the more typical, larger, and less specific context of the universe. Since the practice of physics is unavoidably landed and extractive, so are the objects of study of physics. To show this, I will use Barad's concept of a phenomenon as the basic ontological unit. Barad's work is a pillar of new materialism. They take their interpretation of quantum ontology and use it to inform an ontology for the whole world. In their framework, there are no hard boundaries around the physical and discursive elements involved in any particular phenomena, exemplified by the importance of a cigar in the results of a classic physics experiment. My main purpose here is to use this framework to argue that phenomena could not happen as objects of study of physics without the extractive networks that brought materials for experiment and computers to physics workers. Barad's framework is not emplaced. Though they attend to specificity, they make far more reference to being in the universe than to being on Earth or in a particular place. The way that they prioritize an ontology of quantum physics serves to reproduce assumed epistemic authority of physics, which isn't necessarily more valuable than an ontology based on culturally specific ecology. Before making use of their framework, I will advance a constructive critique of it. I will start with summarizing the framework in section 5.1 before critiquing it in section 5.2. I will make my constructive argument in section 5.3 and conclude in 5.4. Section 5.1, Barad's Phenomena. In their book, Meeting the Universe Halfway, Barad presents an ethico-onto-epistemology based in quantum mechanics. They cover a lot of ground, and I don't intend to present their entire framework of agential realism here. One might say, actually, that I am making use of their analytic mode of diffraction, taken from their experience as a physicist and from Haraway, who Barad quotes as saying, Diffraction patterns record the history of interaction, interference, reinforcement, 
difference, end quote. I am focusing on Barad's notion of a phenomenon, not to reproduce it exactly in this text, but rather to write it as I understand it and to write it expansively, differing from the way I read it from Barad. So, what is a phenomenon? We can start from the world which is made up of matter. Speech is matter, discourse is matter, because they all exist within the universe and have causal effects. There is no hard line between what is natural and what is cultural. In fact, there is no hard line between anything. When bits of this world interact together, or intraact, differences are produced between them that allow their distinction. An intraaction requires some kind of apparatus, which includes the bits of matter intraacting, any people who set them up together, the discursive framework that might have encouraged their setup, and of course any physical tools involved. Through all of this, differences are made legible and individual objects are made. Let's get more concrete to get closer to the point. We can think, for instance, of a classic pesky problem of quantum mechanics, wave-particle duality. When you run an experiment one way, you get a result consistent with a wave. Run it just a slightly different way, and you get a result consistent with a particle. To many, this indicates a problem. Is the object in question a particle, or is it a wave? How could it be both? But this is only a problem if you run the experiment expecting to measure something which already exists. Of course, there is something with which the experimental apparatus interacts, and it's the same something whether you use the experimental apparatus that makes it look like a wave or like a particle. The thing that changes is the apparatus, and so you measure that something in a different way. And the word measure doesn't serve us well here, since it seems to imply the something already has the property we want to observe. In reality, the apparatus intraacts with that something to produce a phenomenon which is legible as the result of a wave, as in a diffraction pattern of lines on a screen, or a different apparatus interacts with the something to produce a phenomenon legible as the result of particles, two bright lines on a screen. Rather than there being an object of study of physics that is a photon, there is a setup of metal and laser and screen that produces something we can see. Barad says, quote, theoretical concepts are not ideational in character. They are specific physical arrangements, end quote. When I speak here about an object of study of physics or about a phenomenon in physics, this is what I mean. It is a setup that materially exists that allows some bits of the universe to interact with other bits of the universe, and so to be read in a way that allows us to say one of those bits behaved like a particle, or was highly entangled with another bit, or that a star is so many billions of years old, or that the composition of some shaking rock includes natural gas-rich shale. Photons are not something that exist out there in the universe. We do have good evidence that suggests matter behaves in impressively spatio-temporally uniform ways, which means that if we use the same apparatus in a different time and location, we'll get the same result. There is stuff that really does exist. 
The stuff that interacts with the lab apparatus in a way that is legible as a photon interacts with other apparatuses in similar ways, but not in exactly the way that it interacts with the lab apparatus. This way is as stuff under study, as stuff to be controlled, and as stuff which serves to control other bits of matter. Experiments involving photons are a particular material discursive setup creating apparati that do not exist elsewhere. In this sense, photons as physics phenomena do not exist outside of the practice of physics. Now, it might look like I've created a sharp ontological divide here. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not interested in the boundary between what counts as a photon as a physics phenomenon and what doesn't. I am only trying to show that there are specific contexts created by the social and material efforts of physics which display or contort bits of the world in particular ways. The apparatuses which produce phenomena are a crucial part of the phenomena. Here is the point about phenomena that we really need to do work in this chapter. There's no hard boundary around what counts as the apparatus. The apparatus is made of all the stuff that is causally involved in the phenomenon. So, the actual properties of a particular photon, its momentum, say, depend on the entire apparatus that measures it, including the funding structure that put the avalanche photodiode on the table, and the hours of alignment that a graduate student put into the optical setup. I will use this to argue that land and the extractive structures exemplified by the story of indium in chapter 4 are a part of physics phenomena. To get there, I first need to refine Barad's concept. Section 5.2, Dethroning Physics and Working with Land. There are two major problems that I see with Barad's work. First, by privileging the explanatory power of quantum mechanics, they uphold a widespread presumed epistemic authority of physics. That authority is a problem, since it serves as a justification for the necessity of practicing physics, even when the practice of it causes harm. Second, and related, by talking so much about the universe, Barad misses the importance of land. They act as if quantum ontology gives us a new way to think about relational ontology, when Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee thought have been doing it for a long time. I am seeking here to use both Barad's phenomena and land together to argue that physics phenomena are landed in a way that disrupts the presumed necessity of physics. Section 5.2.1. Quantum mechanics isn't universal. Barad works from explicit examples of quantum mechanics to make claims about the whole world. They use the literal language of entanglement, a quantum theoretical word, to describe the enmeshed nature of matter that interacts in a phenomenon, no matter what size or temperature the matter is. Quantum theory is rich and powerful, yet it will never be a theory of everything. The way that Barad writes encourages the reification of quantum mechanics, the view that it somehow gets at what is most true about the world. This elides many of the specifics of the dynamics of matter, society, and ecosystems. 
this treatment is not emplaced. As discussed earlier in the thesis, it is important to attend to the specifics of place, not just the universe at large. Hall and et al. in a 2017 article raise a related critique of Bharat using Anna Singh. There is no such thing as a universal scale, no universal critical phenomena. Why would there be particularities in every interaction, yet universality across scales? Singh requests instead in her book A Mushroom at the End of the World that we pay attention to friction between different scales of the universe. There are a few frictions between the scale of the quantum mechanical that Barad uses as their defining example of phenomena and the scale of ecology, namely the non-existence of entanglement at a large, wet, warm scale, the highly contextual nature of quantum theories, and the ability of bits of Earth to be historied in ways that electrons aren't. Overall, this supports a fourth problem, quantum theoretic language being widely used in a way that is uncritical of, and thus further entrenches the role that quantum mechanics itself has played in supporting colonialism and extraction. Entanglement is for quantum stuff. Barad argues that, because quantum physics provides us with accurate results at a range of scales from the microscopic to the macroscopic, it supersedes classical physics. They acknowledge that classical mechanics is still more useful in, for instance, projectile problems, but that we know, fundamentally, that quantum mechanics is the correct framework which describes the dynamics of the entire universe. The theoretical basis for their argument is that Planck's constant, h, is nowhere zero. It is, as far as anyone can tell, 6.626 times 10 to the negative 34 joule seconds everywhere in the universe. This constant sets the scale of the fundamental limitation on measuring position and momentum, or other complementary variables, and much else besides. Roughly, to get to classical mechanics back from quantum mechanics, you usually take the limit of h going to zero. This is well justified for classical mechanics, since for large objects, the ratio of h to the mass m is very tiny, close to zero. Or for very warm objects, the ratio of h to the average energy of a particle is very tiny. Yet this ratio is never actually zero. So, says Barad, classical mechanics is strictly wrong, and the only reason we don't use quantum mechanics everywhere is an effectively technical limitation of the difficulty of using it for many calculations. And finally, we thus have reason to believe that there is literal entanglement at macroscopic scales. But entanglement is a specific property of quantum information. It is just a measure of correlation. It's just stronger than classical correlations. I ought to note that Barad would probably dispute this. Their interpretation of quantum mechanics is ontological, meaning that they attempt to take the metaphysics suggested by the theory as literally as possible. Many quantum theorists take an epistemic interpretation of quantum states, meaning that they take the quantum state to be some kind of probability distribution which doesn't necessarily say anything about the ontological constitution of the matter in question. 
saying that entanglement is just a measure of correlation is, at a minimum, agnostic about the ontological quality of the quantum state. There may be evidence that can be found to say for certain whether the state is epistemic or ontic. See, for instance, Harrigan and Speckins from 2010. Now, correlations in quantum mechanics can be much stronger than those in classical mechanics. This is what some people mean when they say entanglement. Entanglement is surprising from the perspective of classical mechanics because classical dynamics do not allow systems to become so strongly correlated. If entanglement is genuinely present at scales which are very well described by classical mechanics, it would be proportional to the degree that there are phenomena present extraneous to the description afforded by classical mechanics. So, even if we hold, like Barad, that entanglement is ontological, the amount of literal entanglement that could feasibly exist at the scale is itty-bitty. Not to mention, even, that it is a difficult property to maintain in a quantum system, nor is it a ubiquitous one. Not all interactions which change the state of quantum systems, for instance, create literal entanglement between the system and the apparatus that acted on it. See for more details Nielsen and Chuang, 2010. There are other interesting questions here about the role that hot and many-bodied environments play in the preservation, or lack thereof, of entanglement. It is well known that for quantum systems, a thermal environment will cause a pure state to become mixed, degrading any entanglement within the state. To what degree does the quantum state then become entangled with its environment? Some, as far as I can tell, but we do not live in a world where most of our atoms are in pure, entangled states. For the most part, our atoms are part of complex ensembles with information that is far better described by statistical mechanics than by a theory which deals in quantum information, though there is, of course, overlap. There is also a real sense in which thermalization is how information gets erased. In a warm, macroscopic world, such as our own, Thermal fluctuations are constantly erasing information by returning distributions to uniform thermal ones. I cannot think of a sense in which any possible extant entanglement in these scenarios is relevant or does anything. Entanglement also needn't be present for deeply entwined causal structures to exist. It can only be measured when we can accurately represent the state of a quantum system in a certain way when it can be expressed as a distribution over a basis of an operator, like spin in the x-direction. This mode of representing matter captures certain information about it, usually its position, momentum, or energy. If the system is entangled in one basis, it is entangled in every basis, but not all information can be represented in the framework of operators and bases. Is gender really able to be captured in this way? The history of a piece of metal? If it can be, I don't see how. Nor do I see how seeking a direct application of quantum mechanics to world history could be useful. The world already cannot be described by classical mechanics. Clearly, if entanglement is not strong at the scale of world history, then it is not necessary for complex entwined causal structures or to justify a relational, non-individualist ontology. Theories are a Swiss army knife. 
There being one real world doesn't mean that there is one theory which captures all of it in a useful way. Barad works in the frame of quantum mechanics, which I'll call here QM. Why not talk about quantum field theory, which I'll call QFT? There is a sense, after all, in which the world is not quantum mechanical, but quantum field theoretic. Quantum mechanics does not include space-time. QFT does, and we know that space-time is important. QFT provides fantastically accurate experimental results, probably providing several of the results that Barad references on page 110 in their book without citation when they argue that quantum physics supersedes Newtonian physics. Extending Barad's argument about quantum mechanics superseding classical mechanics, QFT is clearly more true than QM. So what gives? What of how difficult entanglement is to define in QFT? Researchers currently must rely on quantum mechanical systems interacting with quantum fields to measure entanglement in them. See, for instance, Sachs et al. 2017. I will use QFT here to argue that treating any quantum theory like a universal theory is misguided. Is QFT really a theory which supersedes quantum mechanics? Does it even supersede classical physics? I would say no. Laura Ricci, a philosopher of QFT, might agree with me. She takes seriously the idea that there is one world, but isn't convinced that we need one theory and one metaphysics to describe it. She's a self-described locavore. This is in opposition to an approach that would take a single, scientifically informed metaphysics. Rather, quote, the locavore contends that the metaphysics of modern science, the framing commitments that promote legitimate scientific aims in all their guises, are multiple, and that this multiplicity is a good thing, end quote, Ricci 2014. It turns out that there are infinite non-equivalent ways to mathematically represent a QFT. These different representations are useful for explaining different physical phenomena, different physical phenomena which happen in the one real world, yet which are not able to be described by a single mathematical structure. So, there is no one consistent metaphysics of the world, at least not one informed by the most quote-unquote fundamental theory we know. In some ways, Ricci takes on a similar task to Barad in her 2011 book Interpreting Quantum Theories. The book is about QFT and its interpretations, but she also identifies a specific goal of using a specific argument about physics to inform a general philosophical stance. Yet, she does not say that the ontology of QFT is literally maintained at all scales. Rather, the lesson is that we genuinely have many interpretations of the world from our many theories of it. They give interpretations which are often contradictory, but that's not a bad thing. Each bit of theory is like each tool in a Swiss army knife. In this, Ricci demands attention to be paid to scale and context and purpose. She is not interested in a theory of everything, even if such a thing existed. It would better serve us to address philosophical problems with our current theories and their successors 
than to wait around for ultimate success or to philosophize about something that we do not have access to. We should be focused on what is useful as opposed to what is grand. Earth information exceeds quantum information. Taking land as our framework, it is clear that every object has a specific and placed history and future. Everything comes from somewhere. As I will argue later, this is important for how the objects of physics are part of land. Yet, we must be careful about equating different kinds of information. A few paragraphs earlier, I noted that you can have complex causal structures, like that of political economy, without entanglement have anything to do with it. I want to elaborate here on the differences between information at quantum and human scales. Thermalization in quantum systems is instructive here. Say I have a little group of electrons in a particular state. Say they all have the same vertical position. If I just leave them be, they will tend towards a state that is less special, where they're distributed randomly along the vertical axis. This is thermalization in an isolated system, going from a specific to a fairly randomized common state. There are a few conditions to meet in order for this to happen, and those conditions are not entirely well understood in quantum mechanics, but we do know that it is really very common. See, for instance, Regal and Shrednicki, 2012. The first state of the electrons can be thought of as having had some information. Its position distribution was unique, making it useful for representing a bit of information. You could assign all electrons aligned low as zero and all electrons aligned high as one. After the electrons spread out, the distribution is not very unique at all. There are so many ways for those electrons to be distributed after all. In quantum systems like this, it quickly becomes difficult to tell the history of those electrons. Thermalization effectively erases that information, and at very short timescales. The quantum history of electrons quickly becomes irrelevant to their dynamics. We can note that it is a widespread, well-justified, and very useful approximation in quantum systems to say that the dynamics are Markovian, this means that the dynamics at each moment are only dependent on the state of the system at the previous moment. They are instantaneous and do not care about history. This isn't always true, and it is an approximation, so Barad might say that, strictly speaking, no dynamics are Markovian, and thus all histories matter. That would not be an argument I put much trust in. Okay, let's think deeper about this group of electrons that I have. We can dispense with the usual physics mode of thinking about stuff as if it is the only thing that exists in the universe, which is seriously a useful and common way to think about stuff, especially in QFT. Instead, these electrons are a real part of this Earth. They're not isolated. Most electrons are in atoms, after all. Maybe they're in a bit of copper wire. What is their history on the scale of the Earth? Copper is a conductor, so the electrons aren't tied to individual nuclei, but they have the freedom to move around. Usually, they move quite slowly in random directions. 
If a DC current is applied to the wire, they move opposite to the current direction at a few millimeters per hour. So we can expect that for as long as the copper wire has been roughly that shape, most of its electrons have stayed with it. Before they were in that bit of copper wire, maybe they were in a larger chunk of copper. I'm not sure what happens to electrons during smelting processes. Maybe there is an exchange of valence electrons between copper, oxygen, and silicon ions as they're separated from each other. Regardless, the electrons were probably in a bit of copper ore that was transported long distances using a massive amount of fossil fuels. Maybe that ore was extracted from the ground in the Atacama Desert, where several of the largest copper mines in the world are. The bit of copper wire has this Earth-scale history in it somehow. For Haraway, the history in objects is a tangle of threads, a ball of yarn. Quote, you can explode them. You can untangle them. You can somehow loosen them up. They lead to whole worlds. End quote. Haraway, 2004. She also says that, quote, subjects and objects are sedimented, end quote, into something like a computer chip. Barad speaks of the liveliness of matter, the way that it has agency in its own interactions where meaning is inscribed. Are these two stances compatible? If we are careful about scale, I think yes. And I'm not sure that Barad would ever think that these stances are opposed. I find their discussion of scale nevertheless in need of some clarity on the issue. The dynamics of the electrons as we attend to them within the wire don't care much about the geological history of wire, let alone their own position five minutes ago. Yet, there are non-quantum mechanical causal influences across scales. For me to be able to manipulate the electrons at all, the copper wire coming from a particular mine through extractivist economic practices has to be in my lab, with all of its sophisticated technology and funding and lab techs and its university. This is a real and tangled way of Earth-scale dynamics affecting quantum ones. And they influence Earth-scale stuff back. A signal from my measurement of their position boots some other electrons in my computer into gear to record the way the apparatus was affected by their dynamics. Yet, the electrons will forget. Five minutes later, from the lens of quantum information, it is as if I have never manipulated them at all. The copper in the lab, though it may, like its electrons, have no information at a quantum scale about where it came from, cannot be without its history. Like the mark left on the computer that records the dynamics of the electrons, there are marks on the Earth that have recorded its being excised of copper ore. This is where I can see the Baradian approach tying the whole issue up by saying that there is entanglement across scales. But, at risk of belaboring my point, I think this has problems. The language of entanglement prioritizes the scale of quantum dynamics. The ontology of physics, classical and quantum both, has been prioritized for far too long. It is too easily universalized. Since quantum dynamics have genuine differences from Earth-scale dynamics, this universality based on quantum ontology doesn't hold enough room for the durability of land as objects. 
Barad writes about us being a part of the universe. We are more a part of the earth. A single ontology elides the existence of land. Preserving the political position of physics. Barad is offering an ontology that is alternative to the one presented by classical physics. They contrast, for instance, quote, that while classical physics is premised on an inherent distinction between subject and object, quantum physics relies on agentially enacted cuts, end quote. This assumes importance of the ontology of any physics at all to the social world. We do not need to exclusively rely on the ontology of physics, whether classical or quantum, to tell us about the important scales and responsibilities and sustainability of the way we operate in structures of life. It is an unnecessary reification of physics to think otherwise. This is a trend in theorists similar to Barad. Critiquing them in a 2013 article, Sundberg draws on Watson and Huntington to say that post-humanist theories like Barad's, quote, tend to glorify modern science and technology, thereby privileging only certain human-non-human assemblages, end quote. Holland et al. holds that Barad does not intend to draw on the authority of physics. Intended or not, they do. Surely, part of the reason their work has been so widely taken up is the socio-epistemic authority and mystical draw of quantum mechanics. Barad is very familiar with quantum sciences and the possible responses from other quantum scientists to the claim that quantum mechanics applies non-metaphorically to the world. They are familiar with the ways that another quantum scientist might push back on their non-metaphorical method. Many social scientists are not. Overt attendance to quantum mechanics continues to award epistemic prestige to the study of physics, even in ways that spill over into fields like anthropology, see for instance Kirby, 2011. The use of quantum mechanics is not necessary to believe that some meaning is created during interactions. I will elaborate later on how we might upend this by positioning the objects of study of physics as part of land rather than positioning everything as quantum mechanical. Barad's work has used the epistemic authority of physics and the assertion that its ontology is fundamental to become widespread. This is a problem. The belief that the work is fundamental is a justification for many physicists, even as they work for war agencies. The way I have tried to attend to scale here challenges this belief. Studying physics tells us more about specific parts of the universe, and we are not merely in the universe we are unavoidably on planet Earth. It can't be that learning about the tiniest and biggest bits of the universe are always good for life on Earth. I wonder, for instance, about how Barad's framing of the importance of quantum physics has influenced the way people think about quantum computers. It seems pretty easy to go from quantum mechanics tells us something fundamental and useful about all scales of the world to quantum computers must be useful. Yet, quantum computers are mostly useless, and if they benefit anyone, it is those with quite enough power and food on the table already. See my thesis, 2019. Maybe this is an uncharitable read, since again and again Barad implores us to attend to specifics. 
but they don't attend to the specifics of quantum physics sometimes being unworthy of pursuing. There must be more room to challenge the ubiquity and necessity of studying physics. Section 5.2.2 Matter matters, and so does land. Meeting the universe halfway is one of the most popular texts of new materialism and post-humanism, a turn to deep ontology. Zoe Todd, Vanessa Watts, and Juanita Sudberg, among others, critique this movement for its Eurocentrism. We are trying here to get at a way to understand phenomena of physics that will assist in anti-colonialism. So that's no good. I'll share some of these critiques here so that we can use Barad's phenomenon appropriately. New materialism uses many ideas from various indigenous philosophies without citation. In a 2016 article, Todd discusses the Inuit sila, which is climate and life, as an important concept to recognize and engage with when discussing climate change and the Arctic. Latour came close to discussing something like it in a 2013 talk, but never named it. Barad mostly engages with scholars like Foucault, Butler, and Bohr. Clearly, there is an absence of engagement of the scholars of new materialism with indigenous scholars. Barad does a lot of work to remove hard boundaries between objects. They go as far as saying that there are only interactions, not interactions. This is in response to an aspect of the culture Barad studies and works in, a Euro-colonial culture. Sundberg, in a 2013 article, writes that Barad, quote, refers to a foundational ontological split between nature and culture as if it is universal, end quote. This is not present in all nations. There is also, in Barad's work, an absence of attendance to the specificity of place and how it is wrapped up in specific epistemologies. They offer one ethico-onto-epistemology, falling into the settler conceit of needing or being able to provide one framework that will work for all people in all their different contexts. I noted earlier that Barad tends to work towards locating their work within the universe, rather than on Earth. Relying on something positioned as universal, quantum mechanics, to inform the most fundamental ontological unit leaves room for more than a bit of settler epistemology of place. C.C. Wright, 2014. In that colonial epistemology, no place is really deeply different from any other. They can all be boiled down to a fundamental ontology of stuff to be manipulated, rather than an always historied, always in more than human relation, complex setup of networked bodies. Watts, in 2013, calls this indigenous place thought, quote, the non-distinctive space where place and thought were never separated because they never could or can be separated, end quote. Barad pushes for complex networks and for the agency of matter, but what of the agency of each networked nation in the structures of land to operate on its own scales? What of the acknowledgement of the harm that physics has had on specific lands, like the nuclear tests on stolen western Shoshone land, see Bros 2019 or Solnit 2014? How does propping up physics as that which defines ontology allow room for physics to be accountable to the harm it has done to particular lands? 
what room is there for responsibility to the legal practices of indigenous nations who have been under occupation for centuries? In order to understand phenomena in an anti-colonial way, there must be an understanding of physics as tied to land as tied to law. Finally, attending to physics or matter generally, as opposed to land and particular land epistemologies, creates errors in how we think about time. Barad certainly wants to mess with the most typical linear conception of time by creating room for past and future to be part of the unfolding of the present and to be affected by the present. But why should time be defined by quantum phenomena? or defined in some opposition to time in classical physics? Is there room for time to be defined by ecological, geological, and social scales? Sheridan and Longboat in 2006 discussed time in a Haudenosaunee worldview. Quote, To know deep time is also to understand sky, earth, water, and spirit in their sacred interaction, and to know this attains an equivalent depth of human belonging to deep time's continuity in the present, end quote. Clearly, time is about more than subatomic particles. We can see, again, that Earth information is different from quantum information. The deepness of time is also infused with an ethical imperative to be responsible to seven generations in the future. Time is inseparable of law. Sheridan and Longboat talk about quote-unquote round time at various scales. There is an impetus within ecologies to return to quote sacred times forever. And this is a recognition of the agency of complex networks of life to seek balance. Like the return of blueberries in Sudbury after emissions from the nickel smelters were reduced in the 70s. The size of the circle of time depends on the process. Blueberries return quickly. Rocks don't. Section 5.3. Seeing with Earth-Made Eyes. Barad talks at length in Meeting the Universe Halfway about physics experiments in order to demonstrate their concepts of apparatuses and phenomena. They extend the traditional boundaries of experimental apparatuses to include people, nationalities, and tobacco habits, to demonstrate my modification of their sense of apparatus, I will extend their example of the Stern-Gerlach experiment. Let's review the experiment briefly. A bit of silver is heated in an oven. Silver atoms are ejected from the oven and focused through an inhomogeneous magnetic field. They land on a screen with their positions indicating how they were deflected when they passed through the magnetic field. This experiment is a classic of quantum physics, and the bane of many second-year physics students. In Quantum Physics 1 classrooms across universities, the Stern-Gerlach apparatus is depicted in a simple diagrammatic form with black lines on a white background. A box on the left is labeled oven. A line shoots out of it to the right, passing through two slits labeled collimator and separating into two lines between an upper box labeled S for south and a lower box labeled N for north. The two lines end at a screen at the right edge of the diagram. Or students play with a colorful web page, where each element is represented in more detail. In the FET simulator, they are 3D green and orange boxes. 
and there are dials with details of the preparation of the spins and the axis of the magnetic field. Students can click a few buttons to shoot the particles and measure their spin. The typical depiction of the apparatus in a physics textbook includes essentially only this. There is little mention of what Stern and Gerlach were aiming for, or how they got there. It is made to seem like a simple fact of nature just waiting for the boys to set up a couple of silver atoms and magnets to become clear. Barad changes this narrative. First, they emphasize that neither Stern nor Gerlach knew that they were measuring spin to begin with. They sought to provide evidence for spatial quantization. This emphasizes the liveliness of matter. It's surprising sometimes. It also wasn't as definitive as normally portrayed. Initial results did not indicate clear beam splitting. Quote, Although virtually every quantum physics textbook hails the Stern-Gerlach experiment as a definitive and straightforward result, push a button and note what happens, it was only years afterwards that the results were given their current interpretation, end quote. Second, and more importantly for my argument, Stern and Gerlach were able to read the screens that the silver atoms landed on because of cheap cigar smoke, the sulfur in which turned traces of hard-to-see silver into noticeable black silver sulfide. Stern watched the traces of particles appear as he breathed sulfuric breath onto them. Barad redraws the apparatus. This diagram is also a line drawing in black and white. An atom beam is represented by a dotted line passing through two magnets, splitting into two beams and hitting a screen. Near the screen, Barad has added a thin tube, labeled cigar. This is used to illustrate what they mean by an apparatus. Quote, Apparatuses are not static laboratory setups, but a dynamic set of open-ended practices. A cigar is among the significant materials that are relevant to the operation and success of the experiment. Not any cigar will do. Indeed, the cigar is a condensation, a nodal point, as it were, of the workings of other apparatuses, including class, nationalism, economics, and gender." End quote. They do not mean that the silver atoms were pushed to one side because of the cigar, or that that was the only way to see the result. Rather, quote, the social and the scientific are co-constituted. They are made together, but neither is just made up, end quote. Fine. This sounds great so far. The boundaries of apparatuses are not hard, though they are often represented as so in physics literature. The phenomenon of silver atoms being split by their electron spin direction, in the instance of the Stern-Gerlach experiment, included cigar smoke and everything that brought the cigar smoke to touch the silver atoms. Still, the Stern-Gerlach diagram with a cigar does not include an acknowledgement that the magnets or the screen or the silver atoms came from somewhere before they were constructed into this apparatus. The original physical apparatus is quite different from the diagrams. It is made of metal, not lines, in a large, mostly circular shape out of which several tubes and valves extend. Many materials and fabrication techniques were used to build the apparatus. The magnets are on display at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. 
they aren't even shaped like boxes. They are cylindrical, with one face cut into a wedge, the tip of which has been flattened on one of the magnets. The origins of the materials are not included in the representation of the apparatus, another way that practices of physics continue disoriginating. But on what basis can we even include them? Barad includes the cigar smoke because it had a causal effect. It turned silver into silver sulfide. It made the path of the silver particles traceable. What would it matter where the silver atoms came from before this? Smelting removed almost all atoms which were not silver. The smelter physically disoriginated the metal, removing traces of its physical context in ore, geology, and geography. It is highly unlikely that the physical content of a sample of silver would have had a noticeable effect here. I do not want to include the origin of a metal in the description of an experiment because I wrongly assume it affects the science like the cigar smoke did. I want to include the origin of metals for a stronger reason. Their presence makes the experiment possible. Without the silver atoms being in Frankfurt in 1922, they would not have been on a path that could be measured. Without the magnet, likely made of iron, that path would not deflect. Without the screen, there would be no record of their deflection. It is not so much that this silver or that silver changes the experiment, but that the presence of silver at all creates the possibility for the experiment. The presence of silver, in turn, was created by hundreds of years of the practice of extraction and by the specific extraction of those specific silver atoms from the crust of our only planet by human beings. Without access to a bit of the material power created by extraction, Stern and Gerlach would not have been able to create the conditions where silver atoms and magnets and cigar smoke and screens acted together with the experimenters to produce something which could be read as the bidirectional nature of the magnetic moment of atoms. This is more than a platitude of gratitude for the sacrifices made for science. This is an assertion that the objects of study of physics exist only because of apparatuses made from the fruits of extraction. Physics enfolds into being together with these metals. We see with earth-made eyes. All of the phenomena of physics happen in apparatuses that come from the ground. That doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't exist if not for extractivism, but it is honestly hard to imagine a world where technology exists that requires dozens of metals mined from all over the world and where the relations of land are truly respected and maintained with the intent to maintain them for thousands of years. I do mean all phenomena. Theory is not an exception here. That work often depends on computers, first of all. Second of all, the work is deeply tied with experiment, with experiments prompting theory and vice versa. Most physics work is expected to be testable. A theoretical claim ought to be able to fit into the physical framework of a lab or a telescope and corroborated or dismissed. As a side note, significant exceptions have been made to this, as with string theory. See Prescott-Weinstein, 2020. More than that, any one physicist's work depends on the past 150 years or so of experimental and theoretical work. It is not that there are no parts of the world which exist without human interaction. The bits of matter that we call electrons seem, by every reasonable estimation, 
to exist everywhere and without our help. But, in keeping with Cartwright, writing in 1999, the only time that a group of silver atoms are divided into two by the direction of their electron spin is in a lab doing this experiment. Cartwright goes further in suggesting that physics is created entirely within the lab, and that we should take seriously the idea that the laws of physics routinely change. I won't take that route here. Still, the only time matter becomes legible, controllable, and neatly describable as an object of study of the practice of physics is by the particular arrangement of objects in a lab, built on decades of published and tacit knowledge of physics workers. Otherwise, as discussed earlier, it has relations with other parts of the world, and histories unknown to humans, and an existence unto itself. It's just that, in those contexts, it doesn't belong to the human practice of physics. I'm not making this argument because I want to make the practice of physics more accurate or efficient. I don't actually care about that. I don't think that attending to where the silver in an experiment comes from will likely change the answer to questions about quantum behavior. I do think this argument can change what research questions are asked. If we do not ask in a particular lab how to make indium gallium arsenide into a single photon source, then there will be no instance of single photon behavior in that lab, an instance of human dynamics causally affecting quantum dynamics across scales. If we consider the actual stuff of physics to be landed, we can no longer pretend that physicists study stuff that is on some level unrelated to the rest of the world. Physics is not the study of the universe. It is the reading of bits of the universe created strictly within the bounds of, and with the tools, the eyes of, the earth. Section 5.4, Conclusions. The objects of study of physics are particular. They are the interactions of humans, lab computers, thin films, lenses, and so on. They happen on land with particular history. They are made of land that comes from many places. Their behavior does not give us a unique ontology to apply universally. Their behavior does not set them uniquely apart from land-based law. The study of which laws apply to extracted materials that become a part of physics phenomena is outside the scope of the thesis and my expertise. There is, at minimum, a precedent within the dish with one spoon to attend to keeping the land clean, something we know that mining does not do. In the next and final chapter, I will explore more options for how physics can resist extractivism and colonialism.